You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Del Rosso, uh, again with another exciting Derms and Conditions Podcast. And it's a pleasure today to talk to Dr. George Hahn. Uh, George is, I know he's been described as a rising star. Um, He's a lot more than that, in my opinion. I've gotten to know George very well over the last year or two, and he's a wealth of knowledge. So we're going to be talking to him about several areas that I think will be valuable to you in clinical practice. He is Associate Professor at Hofstra Northwell, uh, which is on Long Island. That's a recent position for him, and I'm very proud of him with that. You know, we know him from his work at Mount Sinai uh, with Mark Lebwall, where he continues to collaborate. So, George, welcome to Derms and Conditions. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, George, you know as well as I that there's a plethora of information that we try to keep up with in dermatology. So knowing that you do such a great job with this, are there some areas where you found new information that has altered your approach or changed your approach to certain situations in dermatology where maybe you had a strong belief in one direction or you did things a certain way, but now you're sort of changing these approaches based on new information that you've read about or experienced or heard about? Yeah, no, that's a great question, especially now, you know, you look at the chat, it's getting thicker and thicker. Um, I'm thinking it might come in handy if you need to smash any ganglion cysts nowadays, but there's there's a lot of literature out there. And the tough part is that they, they, you know, kind of contradict each other. A lot of times you see a lot of these epidemiologic studies where depending on the, the database they use, it can go one way or another. But, you know, I think there still are a lot of great pearls out there. One actually I, I can think of that I just used today. Um, I had this patient come in with a pyogenic granuloma. And so, you know, my typical approach, honestly, depending on the size of them, is is cryotherapy a lot of times. And, you know, it'll work well sometimes. A, a lot of times you'll, you'll have those recalcitrant lesions that you keep freezing and they just keep coming back. You start thinking about excision. You start thinking about topical immunotherapy, imiquimod. You think about the irritation associated with that. And, you know, got me to thinking, you know, why can't we use in the same way we target topical hemangiomas, uh, a topical beta blocker like, like timolol uh, for these pyogenic granulomas. Because you think about the increased vascular endothelial growth factors, these are, these are the same, same things that are overactivated in these PGs. Um, so, so there actually turns out to be evidence, not a whole lot of it, um, but there was a case series out of UPenn a couple of years ago that was published uh, where they showed the success of using topical timolol. And I think in my mind, this this represents kind of somewhat of a no-brainer, especially in children, where you're looking at the trade-off. And, and we know that um, as a, a hydrophilic molecule, there's not much absorption of timolol. And what is absorbed, um, it, it's not led to anything problematic thus far. And you think about the data and literature with hemangiomas, which tend to be much larger. With PGs, we're talking about probably a much smaller amount, smaller surface area that we're treating. So I feel pretty comfortable with it. Um, so I did, you know, pull on that today to to give to one of my patients who is a pediatric patient with a pyogenic granuloma. So, you know, hopefully that'll become more of a part of the armamentarium, but not many people are talking about it. It's just uh, out there in a couple of sparse case presentations. I've actually had some experience with using it uh, uh, on 
open wounds, like you do a, a surgery and you remove a, a squamous cell carcinoma on the on the lower legs and the skin is really tight and it's a, a person that's older has decreased a vascularity and you, you can't close these. They're going to dehiss. You're going to get all kinds of problems. Where topical timolol, uh, Rob Kirshner taught me this about utilizing it to to accelerate wound healing. But I, I, I'm well aware of it for hemangiomas. I haven't heard about it for pyogenic uh, granulomas. But you're right. A lot of these are children and you're going to freeze them. You know, what are you going to do? Try to hold them down and numb them up and, and remove it. But what about circumstances where you may want to get histology on the pyogenic granuloma, maybe in an adult patient, or are there situations where you're thinking maybe this is Kaposi's sarcoma or an amelanotic melanoma? You're not thinking about that in a four-year-old kid necessarily, though it's not impossible. What about that situation? No, for sure. If there's any, you know, diagnostic uncertainty, it's uh, probably not wise to, to you know, shoot from the hip and and go ahead with it. But you know, I would say that's the the caveat with a lot of things in in our specialty, obviously. So, you know, in this case, it was a, is a pretty obvious one. But we still need to keep our fundamentals, you know, at heart. That if there's anything that we're really concerned about, that we're doubting, um, that you know, we reach for our, our biopsies. But in this case, you know, it's a, it's a nice option where you're not thinking about scarring, you know, you're not thinking about a surgical excision of these lesions on these kids. I think it's it's great. And, you know, beta blockers are, are, are fascinating. I remember even thinking about from medical school, um, learning about beta blockers. They seem to have uh, interactions with, you know, I think about wound healing with fibroblasts, matrix metalloproteinases. So there are some reasons why it, it may help the wound healing. So, you know, I think we've just touched the tip of the iceberg with, with beta blockers, and hopefully we'll get some more research into that. So, George, I need your help. What about some other tips that I'm going to run into when I'm seeing patients or my colleagues are seeing patients in clinical practice? Anything else you've come across? Yeah, there's there's something actually hot off the presses that caught my attention recently uh, that came out in the surgery literature, actually JAMA surgery. So they're looking at efficacy and safety of adalimumab or Humira in conjunction with surgery for moderate to severe HS. And so what was really interesting, they looked at over 200 patients and they looked at whether... Uh, you stopped adalimumab or not prior to the surgery, because that's something that comes up a lot still nowadays, right? You look at the different sources, how long do I stop for, do I stop? And they actually showed that uh, it was actually very effective to just continue the adalimumab what, what kind of, throughout. What kind of surgeries, if you don't mind me asking, what kind of surgeries are you talking about? These people that are being put to sleep to have the whole area excised and grafted, or is it an excision of an isolated lesion? What kind of surgeries were they? These were actually, it sounded like pretty large-scale surgeries, not just single nodules. So these patients um, were actually required, they called it radical surgery in axillary inguinal regions, um, and they were Hurley stage two or three at least. Um, so, you know, these are, we're talking about pretty big surgeries, not just single nodules at all. Um, so, you know, that was actually really reassuring because I, I just, I don't think the evidence for any specific concerns with, with most, you know, kind of superficial surgeries like this uh, to be very strong. And so it's nice to have more evidence that really supports us being able to continue this anti-inflammatory therapy, which really, you know, you think about after, after the surgery, it, you know, you want to keep 
the the gas pedal down on suppressing inflammation in these HS patients. Right, and that that brings to mind, you know, I I think very often when I have patients, and I know you've done a lot with uh, different biologic therapies for psoriasis and 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 other disease states, uh, you know, we get into the habit of doing certain types of baseline testing based on what's in the package inserts when these when a lot of these drugs come out you know get your tb testing get your hepatitis testing etc depending on 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 and that's pretty much been true of all the biologics for psoriasis but then we get new information over time because they're not all created equal we have anti-tnfs anti-il-17s anti uh, IL-23, IL-1223, etc. And we get new information that is not necessarily updated in package inserts because that costs millions of dollars and the, the FDA doesn't necessarily just do it because there's new evidence. And we find out that maybe we don't really need to be doing some of these tests based on new evidence. So for example, with the uh, anti-IL-17s, it's really a concern that we're going to, if a patient had tuberculosis or, you know, we're going, we're going to unmask it or cre- increase the risk of that or underlying malignancy. And it could be any other classes of drugs. Do you have any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, certain things have stuck with us through the years when you think about <laughs> FDA package inserts and labeling. And, you know, some of it is fair, right? You think about the idea that we really want to protect people and we want to take, you know, the safe side of things. But when you think about things such as, as you pointed out, the risk of tuberculosis reactivation, you know, aside from some very, very preclinical studies that that suggested some role of IL-17 and 23, that really has not borne out in either like basic science past that point, nor in in post-marketing surveillance or any of the clinical trials for the biologics. Now, when you think about you know, if I even had any theoretical risk, right? IL-12, I think, may be a little more involved in mycobacterial response. So, you know, there theoretically, you might think about it, but even then we've seen nothing with IL-12-23 inhibition with regards to tuberculosis. So, you know, when thinking about what do we do with this? I mean, we're, we're still stuck checking it. It's never made sense to me why we still have to check for TB, but we don't have to check for hepatitis when a lot of the trials still excluded hepatitis hepatitis patients, but that's neither here nor there. I think when you think about uh, tuberculosis reactivation, I have very little fear that it's going to be relevant for either IL-17 or 23 inhibition. It just doesn't make sense from the science. It's not something we've seen. And more and more, I I appreciate that some of the trials are allowing in these patients, um, even, you know, starting on the medications before you start on treatment for the latent TB, for example. Um, and, and so that kind of protocol has really been helpful. So I think we moved from starting, I think hopefully most people are comfortable if they get a positive uh, TB test quantifiorum gold, which in some areas is still very high. Um, we've moved from being able to start on the biologic maybe a month or so after starting that with even in some cases concomitantly starting the biologic along with those uh, those whatever in your area. 
is the appropriate treatment for latent TB. And I find that sometimes if you do the screening while you're starting to work through the approval process, you know, you'll have a couple of weeks built in where you can start them or send them to ID and start them on a, a treatment for latent TB where you can start the biologic and you won't really delay that at all. Um, so that's one thing. Live vaccines is another, right? So live vaccines is another uh, contraindication that we've carried with every biologic and psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. And there's not really strong evidence on that, right? So we, what we want to see theoretically for uh, vaccines is that either you're at higher risk of getting the infection or you're not going to have as much protection. Um, you know, I think there's been no good data suggesting that for non-live vaccines. And now we're starting to see some data coming out of Europe from the rheumatology, the Pediatric Rheumatology Society there. And they were talking about in some patients, for example, with um, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, really debilitating, but these kids still need their immunizations. Uh, they saw no issues with their population there. So there were over 200 patients, most with ju juvenile idiopathic arthritis and uh, no issues with the live vaccines even. So hopefully we'll see some more progress on that front too. What about risk of malignancy emerging? Or if a patient's had a past history of malignancy, not necessarily talking about basal cell carcinoma or, or in situ uh, malignancies, but on, you know, some type of systemic malignancy or even, even melanoma or squamous cell carcinoma. I know that's a broad question, but we're always faced with this with all these different drugs. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a tough point because we really need a lot of time before we can make good judgments about this, right? Because we're talking about, in psoriasis at least, we're talking about keeping a patient on a biologic for the rest of their lives. That's the discussion that we tell our patients. This is a long-term disease process that we have to keep managing. Um, I think what's reassuring though is that, you know, you mentioned the basal cell squamous cell carcinoma, starting to see a small signal with TNF-alpha inhibitors for that, but nothing for anything ever since, right? So, I would say IL-1223 inhibition, when you look at istikinumab, it's been on the market long enough, over 10 years, that I think we can start to make some good judgments. And that signal for basal cell squamous cell carcinomas is not there. It's simply not there with istikinumab. Now, outside of that, there's never, never, in, in my knowledge, been any um, link with any solid organ malignancies with any biologic that we use. Um, and, you know, I, I think the tough part is that we're dealing with this conception that was fed by a couple of early studies that were not necessarily well designed, where it's very, very messy, right? You're talking about rheumatoid arthritis patients with a higher baseline propensity of developing liquid or liquid malignancies, lymphoma. And then now you're talking about these patients who have been exposed to multiple immunosuppressants over the course of the management of the disease, oftentimes concomitant immunosuppressants, and then seeing perhaps a safety signal with early TNF-alpha inhibitors. We've carried that yoke around our necks throughout the 20 years of biologic treatments, even though our treatments have gotten much better and much more targeted. So, you know, when I explain to my patients, one of the things that I often use is the fact that we're looking at IL-17, IL-23 inhibition as medications uh, that can 
help to work as an adjuvant treatment for cancer. So it's actually been studied in the oncology literature for at least about 10 years now. Uh, the idea that increased IL-23 leads to increased invasion in some of these tumors. And so blocking it might be a strategy to, to help treat it. So I, I sometimes pull that out when some of my patients ask me, well, I, I'm just really concerned about cancer. I don't want to get cancer. And, you know, you tell them that it's being looked at as a treatment for cancer in the oncology literature, all of a sudden, you know, they start to feel a lot better about it. Yeah, you're not making a promise. You're just trying to keep things in a discussion of what we reasonably understand at this point in time. You know, and, oh, what about the anti-TNFs with some of those concerns? Or, or what about with any of these predisposing patients to the risk of herpes zoster? Well, you know, I, I would say that in, in herpes zoster, uh, I, I'm not really very concerned about our biologics. I think we ought to just promote that our patients who are eligible uh, to get the, the vaccine uh, for shingles, they do go out and get it. Um, I think, you know, we're a little more concerned maybe about the JAK inhibitors with herpetic, you know, processes going forward. Um, but with the TNFs, I think the question that we do get is, is more around the malignancies. And again, there's no psoriasis cohort that has really shown any increase in any kind of malignancy outside of uh, non-melanoma skin cancers. So I think that's reassuring. And, you know, it's interesting when we think about the literature, the body of literature that's out there, we think of our psoriasis patients and RA patients, even though a lot of times they get similar medications and we co-manage them, they're very different patients. And I remember I was at the uh, National Psoriasis Foundation residence meeting when I was a resident and Alan Mentor drove that point home. He said, our patients are not the same. Even though the rheumatologists are very gung-ho about using methotrexate at high doses, they say they don't get into problems. Um, they don't get liver fibrosis. That's not something they run into. We do see it in psoriasis patients. And he was using that to tell us, you know, you, you should be concerned. You should think about, you know, fibro scans or liver biopsies after a cumulative dose. I think what's nice that recently that has been uh, put out by, by Joel Gelfin and his group that they showed a, a higher incidence of liver fibrosis. Um, you know, thinking about risk of developing cirrhosis or being hospitalized for cirrhosis compared to RA patients. So psoriasis patient compared to RA patients, there was a three, around a threefold higher risk for psoriasis patients to develop cirrhosis or being hospitalized for it. So that's going to be really important for us going forward, especially because, you know, it gives us more ammunition to push back against these insurance insurance companies. You know, I would not put my relative or loved one on methotrexate for psoriasis in this day and age if I could at all avoid it because we just have better, safer options. Right. But I, I can tell you, George, that I'm, I'm going to tap into you and give some time to go by so you can give an update to all of this. Some of these questions are not that they're unfair, but I realize you know, we, we, we don't have all the information we would like. It's a, it's a moving target. But I want to wrap up because I have this question, uh, and I know you've done a lot with teledermatology. You ran a very successful unit in te teledermatology at Mount Sinai, if I'm not, if I'm not incorrect about that. Uh, and you were on the forefront of educating our colleagues about teledermatology. It seems like it was the rage in the literature and all the publications and, and webinars and things. But it's sort of fallen off the map of the, it's not on the front page, it's on like page 13 now, if it's even there. Where does teledermatology sit right now 
if you could just sum that up. Yeah, I, I would actually agree with a lot of my colleagues that the experience with Teladerm has been <laughs> less than optimal. You know, I can show you screenshots of conducting video visits with my patients where it's just like five blurry pixels on the screen. And this is why people get frustrated with it, right? They think about, you know, I don't want to waste my time with this blurry video that I'm just going to have the patient have to come in anyways. And I don't want to make any decisions based on that. I, I mean, that's just hard to think about. And the problem is because we weren't at the driver's seat of really defining what a good teledermatology platform should entail, right? How do we get AI involved in making sure patients can send us readable, legible, good quality images? How do we make sure that patients have an easy to use platform to send those images in? And then we can then go and look at them and make most of our clinical decisions prior to the video visit, which we then use mostly for counseling. You know, these are all questions and, and kind of infrastructure things that we didn't have in place because derms just weren't too interested in telederm. And I can tell you most people nowadays, even though well over 95% of dermatologists, uh, according to a study we, we conducted from the Teledermatology Task Force for the AAD, went to telederm for the COVID pandemic, the vast majority of those are, are welcome to be rid of it. You know, they're glad that they're seeing patients in the office again, and they can just kind of turn that off. But I think the problem is the cat is kind of out of the bag so that patients know about it, insurers know about it, they see it as a potential for cost savings. If we don't go ahead and define what a proper role for Teladerm, a proper scope and a good way of, of uh, implementing it is, you know, somebody else is going to make that decision. And I think that's where we don't want to be, right? We don't want to be where somebody tells us, you have to see this patient via this mechanism that's imperfect before you can bill for something else for an in-office. You know, we just don't want to be in that position. So I'm Yeah, we want, we want to set the standard. We want to set it up so we know that it works. And then our colleagues can can learn that and do it right. I remember one colleague telling me, Mostly what he saw was the patient's ceiling fan, you know, turning around. And he actually said, hey, that's a really nice ceiling fan. Where did you get that? That was what they got out of that teledermatology visit. So, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. And I like the idea of us, if, you know, it's here. Uh, we don't want it forced down our throat using a method that's not not going to work, be workable for the dermatologist. George, this has been great. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It's a, it's always great seeing you. And I appreciate all the work that you do. You do a lot behind the scenes that our colleagues don't know about uh, because it's the right thing to do and, and you have a passion for dermatology. So I know you're busy. You have a great day. Good luck on your new position. And thanks again for uh, for bringing some things to light that I think our listeners will love. Thank you. It's uh, great to have, you know, <laughs> role models like you to to show me how to uh how to be a good citizen of dermatology so thank you well you're doing well enough on your own thanks you have a great day thank you for listening to this episode of derms and conditions if you have any questions or comments please email us at podcasts at fred.health and most importantly if you like this episode subscribe to the derms and conditions podcast on apple podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows 